Uh, why don't you open your Bible uh, with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we began last week looking at the, the message of John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, the call of John the Baptist. And John was a faithful minister, a servant of God, who was called to prepare the hearts of the people and then present them to their Messiah. Very important that we remember what the calling and ministry of John was. He was to prepare the hearts of the people and to present their Messiah to them. And that is exactly what he's doing. He is preparing those hearts. He is presenting the Messiah to the people. In fact, there are three things that John says throughout the Gospels about Jesus. The first is that he declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God. In John 1, 29, as he saw Jesus coming towards him, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. John calls Jesus the perfect Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the substitute that would die on the cross on behalf of the sins of the people so that we would receive forgiveness and have a right relationship with God. Behold, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God. But he also, in John 1.34, he calls Jesus the Son of God. Not only the Lamb of God, but also the Son of God. And when you would call someone the Son of, it means that they were equal to. So he's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. In John 1.34, John says this, And I have seen and I have testified, this is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. I, I've seen. I've testified. Not only is he the Lamb of God, he's also the Son of God. But John the Baptist also says that Jesus is the Lord. In Luke chapter 3, verse 4, as we looked at it last week, it would describe John as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, what does that mean, make his path straight? Prepare the way of the Lord? It means clear the road of your heart. Make room for the king. That you would straighten out those paths or those hindrances in your heart so that you repent and turn to him, that you would make things right with God, that you would deal with the sin in your life, that you would understand of the judgment and wrath of God to come. So Luke tells us that John went all through the region around the Jordan preaching the gospel or the baptism of repentance. Why the baptism of repentance? Because baptism is the seal of repentance. Baptism says that you have repented in your heart. You have turned away from the old life, from the old way to the new way, which is the Jesus way now. That is what repentance means. It's that Greek word metanoia, which means a change of mind. And a change of mind also means a change of direction. Come and be baptized, John would say, that you would prove that you have had a change of mind 
and also a change of direction. Did you know that with a change of mind also should come a change of behavior? With a change of mind should come a transformation? That with a change of mind, true repentance looks like a change of action outwardly as well? And so the people having heard this message of repentance come to John and said, John, what should we do? And he tells the general public of those that hear him, he says, if you have two tunics, repentance looks like love and compassion, generosity, give one to the other person who has none. Repentance looks like sharing. But then the tax collectors come to John the Baptist and says, what should we do? He said, I don't want you to charge more than it is rightly due. Be just, have integrity. So not only should you be sharing, you should also be sparing. And then the Roman soldiers that come to John and tell him, then what should we do? He said, don't abuse power. Uh, don't ask for more than what your wages are due to you. Be content. You should be caring. So those are the three elements of repentance that John speaks about in those few first verses regarding the testimony of one whose life has changed. You have died to the old self. You have been given a new life in Christ Jesus. You've had a change of mind, which means a change of way as well. Now, why don't we stand today for the reading of God's word there in Luke chapter three, beginning in verse 15 to verse 20. And I'll read the odd verse, you read the even verses out loud together. Luke 3, verse 15. Now as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that today you teach us the truth about repentance, about walking with you, about turning to you in reality. What it means, Lord, to live a life that pleases you. So, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you open our hearts and minds to this message? In Jesus' name, together we said, amen. You may be seated. You see, John described three ways, and we, we first saw him as one that would preach, but here in verse 15 to 18, you see John as the witness. I want you to take note of that so that we would also be giving witness, giving testimony of Christ. And his witness comes as a response to the people's question. They've received the message, now their hearts are stirred. Now the hearts are prepared. The soil of the heart has been broken up and they have questions. They're interested 
in spiritual things. They are in expectation, the Bible says. That means that they are eager and they want to know. Notice verse 15. Now the people were in expectation regarding this. And all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Having heard this message, they were stirred. They were in expectation. They knew that the Messiah would come soon. And so they were all eager to know based on the message that John gave in their hearts about him. Notice there in verse 15, it describes the hearts. The hearts were prepared. The hearts had heard the message. The hearts were eager, expecting, anticipating the coming Messiah. And in their hearts, they reasoned whether John was the Christ, whether John was the Messiah. They were interested to know that this is the kind of impact that John made to them. He preached to them the truth. He talked to them about sin. He talked to them about judgment. He spoke to them about salvation. And when we look at verse 15, it reminds us when the, when the hearers of the gospel begin wondering in the hearts, it is time for us to praise God and to take courage and speak about Jesus. Because this is what happens here. Their hearts are open now. They are wanting to know. They are wondering. So what John does is that he responds to an open heart and he confesses Jesus to other people. There are many people whose hearts have been stirred, whose hearts are open. Our responsibility is to point them to Jesus. This is the legacy of John the Baptist. I think too many times we think of what our legacy will look like after we die here on earth. And the greatest legacy that you can leave to your family, your children, your friends, and those who knew you is that you pointed them to Jesus. In fact, that is the legacy of John the Baptist. We, we've titled the message, One Greater Than I. That is the principle that he builds his life on, on, on one greater than himself. And that is what his confession sounds like in verse 16, because John answered saying to all, notice what he says. I indeed baptize you with water. This is the baptism that represents repentance, but one mightier than I is coming. I baptize you with water, but there is one that is greater than I, and he is coming. And he says, whose strandle strap, I'm not even worthy to lose. He's saying, he is so much greater than me that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He is so much greater than I that I'm not worthy to be his slave. Do you notice the attitude of John here, the, the humility of John? He knew who he was, and he also knew who he wasn't. There is one that is much greater than I, and I am unworthy to be called his slave. You see, during this time, a house slave would remove the sandals of the guests, wash their feet, hold their sandals, and then return to the sandals to them when needed. What John is saying here is that I'm not worthy, I'm not even good enough to, to do this for him. This is who he is. This is how much greater he is than me. 
And he points forward to the greater one. Instead of cultivating his own popularity here, instead of now uh, receiving the attention or the recognition, he points to the one mightier than I, Jesus. You know, this is such a great example because there are many people today that use the ministry to gain attention. They use a position in ministry or even they will use the, the name of Jesus to try to become popular. And he didn't cultivate the popularity for his own life. He puts himself in a lower position. This is what a true, faithful minister, servant of God will always do. He will always exalt Christ. Do you see what John is doing? He is exalting Christ. That is how you know that a person has pure motives. They exalt Christ. To speak of the cross of Jesus, dying, being buried, resurrected, forgiving the ungodly sinners, having the power to give them eternal life, this will be the main objective of the ministry of a true faithful minister. The cross of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the only message that people need to hear. In fact, this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul said it himself, for we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. For we ourselves are your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Do you notice what Paul is saying? The very same thing that, that John is doing. We're not preaching about ourselves. We're preaching about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. All the focus, all the attention, all the concentration is on Christ, not on self. It's very important that we look at this. It's so sad to see how many people, they can't have a conversation without speaking of themselves. Even those people that maybe preach the word of God, they always want to talk about who they are or what they used to be back in the day. Uh, I don't care who you were back in the day. We want to know who Jesus is. That is the objective. There's nothing more interesting than Jesus and what he has done for us. And John had many reasons to be proud. Yet he was humble. And you see his attitude here in verse 16, when his disciples came up to him that they were complaining that more people were coming to Jesus now instead of to him to be baptized. And they come to him and say, you know what? Jesus took our ministry. He's taking all the people. They're going to him. John responds, I already told you, I'm not the one. I'm just the best man at the wedding. You know what the best man at the wedding does? His job is to make sure that the bride and the groom meet. He said, and I rejoice at hearing the bridegroom's voice. I'm satisfied. I'm pleased in this. John 3.30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the ruling principle of all true ministry and preaching. A true minister, a true servant of God, no matter what capacity you serve the Lord in, this should be the principle that rules and motivates your heart and life to serve the Lord. He must increase, I must decrease. And that we would be content, even if your own name is forgotten, so as long as Christ and Him crucified is exalted. That is what matters the most. 
There are many people that would say, well, what are they, are they going to forget my name? It doesn't matter if they remember our name. Do they know the name of Jesus? To know if a teacher is a one that is standing on sound doctrine as you listen to the messages that he would give, uh, I would encourage you to ask yourself, where is Christ in this message? This is how you know whether the teaching is sound. Where is Christ in the message? I heard a quote once be said this way, and I quote, a preacher who is doing us good will make us think more of Jesus every year we live. And you can use that in your own life as a servant of God. You'll make others think more of Christ more every year that we live. Now, I want you to write three principles regarding the calling of John the Baptist because you also have your own personal calling. And it's very like the one of John where he must increase and we must decrease. The first one is that a called person understands stewardship. Remember this today, a called person understands stewardship. What does this mean? That John understood that the people in the ministry did not belong to him. He said, there's one greater than I that is coming. You belong to him. He's pointing forward to Christ. He's taking the attention off of himself and turning it over to Jesus. That we would understand that we have been given stewardship of his people and his ministry and our responsibility is to care for his people and bring them over to himself. Number two is that called people understand exactly who they are. They're not confused in regards to their own identity. They have an awareness of identity. They know who they are and they also know who they're not. And John gives us an example of this when he says, I'm not the one as he tells his disciples, but there is one who is much greater than I that is coming. I'm not even worthy to be the slave. I understand that I am not the one that is your savior. I'm just the servant of the savior. And number three is that a called person possesses a great sense of purpose. What was his purpose? To point people to Jesus, to announce Christ. So he says there in verse 16, the second half, after having given all reference to the one mightier than I that is coming, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, there are three types of baptisms that are mentioned in one verse here. He's pointed to the one that's greater, but he's also pointed to a greater baptism. And he said, he will baptize you. Yes, I've baptized you in water, but he will also baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this is a different type of baptism. This is called the second baptism. This is the Holy Spirit's outpouring that he's promised through the new covenant in Jesus Christ that he would baptize us with the Holy Spirit, that we're promised to be immersed by the Holy Spirit, that we're promised that we would overflow by the Spirit's power in our lives. So John, what he's doing here is that he's saying, my baptism, who I am, it is so minor in comparison to the coming one, Jesus, who's gonna baptize you by the Holy Spirit and by fire. What are the three baptisms mentioned in one verse? The first one is the baptism in water. 
And what does that represent? It represents repentance. That you've died to your old self and you're going to live a new life for Christ Jesus. That is the first baptism. The second baptism that is recorded here is that Christ would baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And we all need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit because the baptism of the Holy Spirit reminds us of a transformation in our lives, but also an empowerment. Yes, you've repented, but now you need power to live that new life. We need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit in order to live a holy life. We need the power to change in direction as well. You may have had a change of mind, but the only way you can have a change of direction is if you're baptized by the Holy Spirit's power to give you the ability to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. The reason why so many people can't turn from their old sin is because they haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You receive the baptism of repentance, which is through water, but have you received the baptism of power, which is the Holy Spirit? Do you remember when Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 19 and he comes to the believers and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we, we haven't even heard of, of a Holy Spirit. <laughs> we don't know who he is. And it said that Paul had laid hands on them after having preached to them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they all spoke in tongues and they prophesied. They were equipped, they were empowered. They were given the spirit to be able to live the new life through Christ Jesus. This is what we need. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what Christ gives us as his gift to us. In fact, today you would ask yourself, well, how do I become baptized by the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, today you can ask the Lord right where you are and sitting, Lord, would you baptize me with your spirit right now? And by faith and in prayer, he will baptize you with his spirit. You will receive the power to live that new life that you have been waiting for. It doesn't come in your own strength. It doesn't come by your own effort. It doesn't come by your own human intelligence. Many people think they will be satisfied in life if they try to change their life and they come up with the program or with the formula. The only answer is being baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God. Later in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, notice what Jesus says in Luke 11, if you then being evil, you know how to give gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What does he want you to do? Just ask him. He loves you. He's a good father and he'll give you good gifts. All you have to do is ask him, Lord, baptize me with your spirit. It doesn't mean that when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, that you roll around on the floor, you run around church. That's not what it means. It means right where you are, God gives you the power to live a life that pleases him. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith said, when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk once you hit the floor. That's what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That you have the power to serve the Lord and to live a life that pleases him. Now God's power is always a transforming power but it's also a purifying power. Would you note that today? It is a transforming power and it's also a purifying power, which leads us to the third baptism mentioned in verse 16. First is baptism by water that represents repentance. 
Then it's baptism by the Spirit, which represents empowerment. Then it's baptism by fire, which represents purity or even judgment. There are many people that look at the baptism by fire and think it represents the Holy Spirit. As you look at Acts chapter 2, that when they were baptized, it said that the mighty rushing wind came to them and laid upon them as tongues of fire. But if you read the context of Luke chapter 3, you realize that Jesus is also referring to judgment here. And this is the unbeliever's baptism by fire that will come upon the earth to those that rejected Christ. What John is saying to the people is, not only is there one that is greater than I, I don't have the power to bless you, to save you, and I don't even have the power to judge you. The Messiah will bring a baptism that would both purify those who truly believe and would also judge those who are lacking true, real faith. Like, like the fire that burns up the, the worthless chaff. In fact, we can look at verse 17 and find the context of that fire. Aren't you glad that the Bible interprets the Bible? If you don't, want, you don't know what it means, ask the Holy Spirit. He will reveal it to you and keep on reading. Verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable what? Fire. He is referring to judgment. Jesus will baptize you with the power to serve him and to live for him. But Jesus will also come to separate the false believer from the true believer. He will separate the wheat from the chaff. He is so ready to do this that in his hand is the winnowing fan, it is that wooden fork-like shovel. And what he's doing here is he's giving them an example of agriculture now. He's saying the chaff here is referred to that useless shells of grain that are separated from the useful wheat. And what one would do is that they would grab that winnowing fan that looks like a, a, a wooden uh, pitchfork and they would grab all the, the wheat and, and, and cast it in the air on a, on a maybe windy day. And the useless wheat will be separated from the chaff all on its own. So he gives them this illustration to show them this is what Christ will do. One day he will separate the true believers from the false believers. Those that are truly repented and living for Christ from those that are among them that are truly having given their lives to Christ Jesus. And you notice in verse 17, he says he will thoroughly clean out. I want you to underline the word thoroughly because he's speaking of a complete separation. There's gonna be one day, a, a day of sifting. And on that sifting day, when Jesus comes to separate the wheat from the chaff, the believer from the unbeliever, the converted from the unconverted, he's going to thoroughly clean out. There's going to be a complete separation, a complete segregation. Everything and everyone will be dealt with. That threshing area, that, that threshing floor in verse 17 will be cleaned out. 
And you will notice who's a true follower of Christ and who are false on that great day of sifting. Everyone will go each to his own place. This is why he says, gathering the wheat to his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What does he mean by this? The chaff is gonna be burned up with unquenchable fire, never ending fire. This is a picture of those that are gonna experience God's judgment in a way that never ends. It's unquenchable, it doesn't end. So John is preaching regarding sin, regarding judgment, regarding salvation, regarding the power of the Holy Spirit. There's gonna come a day when this happens, he says. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in a parable that the wheat and the chaff are gonna grow together. They will not be separated until that day where he himself calls it the day of judgment, the day of sifting, where those false believers would be removed from the true believers. In fact, even today, the church is mixed as a body of believers in every congregation. There are believers and then there are unbelievers. There are those that are holy. There are those that are unholy converted and unconverted, they are mixed together. And it's important that we know that only God, only Christ himself can, can give the distinctive in regards to who is true or not. But on that day, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. When Christ returns, he will separate and he will judge. This is what we see here in verse 17. Now look in verse 18 because he continues, John the Baptist, and when many other exhortations he preached to the people. Don't you love that word exhortation? This is what John did. He gave many other warnings. He is preaching the gospel in a biblical way. He is warning the people. He spoke to them about judgment, but with many other warnings. That's what exhortation means. He preached, he proclaimed, he was an announcer, a herald regarding the good news of Jesus Christ. He preached to the people the salvation message by God's grace through the coming Messiah. He was pointing forward to the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Do you notice here that, that John was the voice? But Jesus was the word. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but Jesus came in the spirit and power of Jehovah. John came with the message of repentance, but Jesus came with the message of regeneration. You must be born again. This is the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. John as the witness. Let's look at John as the martyr in verse 19. Because here after he has preached, he then is persecuted. After he has confessed, he stands on his convictions. One of the things that we can learn from John is that we would have strong convictions. There are too many people that think that they're preaching the gospel, but they've watered it down and that is not the real gospel. We have to stand on true convictions, regardless of whether we are liked or hated. The world is not supposed to like you because we're living to live a life that pleases God and not the world. Now notice in verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him 
concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And for all the evils which Herod had done, do you notice what John does? He's a preacher of the truth. And what does he do? He rebukes Herod, publicly criticizes him. He publicly corrects him. He says, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> Why Herod had divorced his wife, married his brother's wife, which was his own niece, if you read uh, through history. And he lives for power, he lives for pleasure. So what John does is that he publicly rebukes Herod for his sexual sin. And then after rebuking Herod for sexual sin, he also rebukes some, notice the word and, and for all the evils which Herod had done. He's a voice in the wilderness, but he's also a voice in the culture. He's preaching regarding those that are in power who are living a sinful life. He's not afraid to speak the truth. Do you notice that? He's not a people pleaser. He's not a respecter of persons. I'm going to change the gospel based on who's listening today. No, he's not doing any of that. There is no partiality in this message. He is definitely not intimidated by those that are in power because he answers to a greater power, and that's the power of God. So do you notice what he's doing? He's rebuked Herod for his sin and many other evils that he had done. He's bold, standing on the truth. But as a result of being bold and standing on the truth, he is persecuted. He is in prison. He is, he is shut up. It would say in verse 20, also added this above all that he shut John up in prison. To add to all of this, to add to his many sins, he persecuted John because of his bold stand for the truth against his sexual sin, against his many evils and wrongs because he was afraid that John's preaching would grow to further rebellion. And he eventually, at the request of his wife, beheaded John in prison. Did you know that there are consequences when we stand for the truth? That's what we have to ask the Lord to give us his spirit that we will not shake even if we have to stand alone. That we'd be people of the truth. In 1 John 3.13, you know what the apostle says? Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us because we're standing for a different set of principles a different lifestyle, the way of Jesus, his kingdom, not the kingdom of this age. As you've, if you've been reading through our daily portion through the Bible, we read this week in Matthew chapter five, through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Oh, how happy it is for those that are persecuted. Those that are opposed for standing for the truth. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then notice what he says next. Blessed, Matthew 5, 11, are you when they revile and they persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Oh, how happy it is that someone would speak against you, speak of you, speak falsely accusing you for my name's sake. You know, in our mindset, we, we get very upset when people speak about us, Right? Someone says something about us and we say, well, you know what? I know a lot about that person too. I can tell you right now. <laughs> Jesus said, oh, how blessing what it is 
When those people are persecuting you because they know that you're standing for the truth. You've identified yourself as one with Jesus. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice, if they persecuted the prophets who were before us, if they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute you. One form where the wheat and the chaff are separated before the great sifting day is when the church experiences persecution. It separates the true believer from the false believer. Persecution has a way of doing this as well. And here what Luke is doing is he's writing these accounts to us more in a topical form rather than chronological in this section because he's explained that John was persecuted because of his preaching, because of his rebuke to Herod. But then he continues in verse 21 through the rest of the chapter speaking of Jesus being baptized by John and he focuses on the Trinity now. I'm gonna see here from verses 21 to 22, the Trinity, the triune God mentioned here. This is amazing here because it speaks of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And in verse 21, you see the son's baptism. I want you to take note of that, the son's baptism. Let's read verse 21. When all the people were baptized, when they had received repentance, they had been baptized, when they had had a change of mind and professed it publicly, all the people were being baptized. It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Notice what happens. Jesus was also baptized baptized. And it shows that Jesus is walking the way of obedience. It shows that Jesus is demonstrating humility himself. He is becoming the example for everyone as the Lamb of God. Why is it that Jesus was baptized? He, he didn't receive baptism because he was a sinner that needed to be cleansed of his sins and needed to repent. That is not why he did it. He was baptized for, for three reasons. And I and I want you to know them today so that you would understand why he was baptized. The first one was to identify. He was baptized to identify himself with sinful men. He came to identify himself with sinful men. He came to give us an example of, we, of what we ought to do. The second reason why he was baptized was to verify to identify with sinful men, but also to verify that he was the Messiah. As he was baptized, we'll see that the Spirit descended upon him. In Isaiah 11:2, the prophet tells us that the Messiah would be the one whom the Spirit will rest upon. He was baptized to verify that he was the Messiah. To identify, to verify, but number three, to prophesy. Why? Because baptism is a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. So what Jesus was saying is that through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, we would receive redemption. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. When you go out to the waters, what do you experience? You're dying to the old self. You're burying that old sinful nature. You're being raised to new life. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He was now prophesying regarding his own death, burial, and resurrection, that by his work on the cross, by his death, by his resurrection, 
we would receive redemption. We would be freed from our sins. In fact, if you notice in Matthew chapter 3, when he approaches John in Matthew's gospel, John says, you shall not be baptized by me. I should be getting baptized by you. <laughs> you know what Jesus responds? But Jesus answered him, permit it to be now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was fulfilling all righteousness in his baptism. Jesus was fulfilling all righteousness in that he was representing the work on Calvary's cross through his own death, burial, and resurrection, and through his own suffering, that the cross would fulfill all the righteousness of God on our behalf. That is what he was doing. So in his baptism, he was prophesying regarding his own work of redemption, that through him, we would be right before God. This is the Spirit's baptism or the Son's baptism. And look at the Spirit's anointing now in verse 22. As it tells us that he was baptized and, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened. Isn't this amazing here as you look at verse 21, the end of 21, that as he prayed, the heaven was opened. How many of us would ask that the Lord, Lord, would you just open the heavens and bless us? Lord, would you just pour your spirit upon your church? You know what the Lord, when he, the Lord opens the heavens? When his church prays. That's the key there that opens the heavens for us. You know what it is, what the church should be doing? Should we want the outpouring of the spirit in our lives? We should be praying. And why did he pray? He prayed because he was depending upon the Father. He was committing his life unto the Father because he was placing his self in the Father's hands, and the heavens open when God's people pray. And it said that the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit came upon him in a bodily form, in a physical form like a dove. The Spirit descends, the heavens open when his people are praying and when they're walking in obedience. Jesus was walking in obedience. Jesus was submissive to the Father's will for his life. He's teaching us that as we walk in obedience, as we walk according to God's will for our lives, as we pray, then we will receive the Holy Spirit as well. If you want the Holy Spirit to descend upon you, then today, you know what we need to do? Pray and walk in obedience. And it came in a form of a dove. A dove is a, is a picture of gentleness, as you see through Scripture. But it came upon him. This, this is the upon experience that he was empowered for service himself. This is the illustration of the unction of the spirit, of the anointing of the spirit that comes upon Jesus. This is the spirit's involvement in the God-man Jesus. This is the spirit working involved in the life of the son, Christ. The power to conquer Satan, the victory, against temptation, his teaching, his preaching, his healing, casting out demons, his death, his burial, his resurrection, were all energized by the Spirit. And this is when he receives the empowerment before he goes out to fulfill his three-year ministry. In 1 John, or John 1, 32, John writes this this way, and John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending 
and like from heaven, like a dove, and he remained upon him. You know what we love about that verse is that it says that the spirit descended, but the spirit also remained. We want the spirit to descend upon us and remain upon us. Amen. We ought to pray and walk in obedience, submissive to the father's will. That was the son's baptism, the Holy Spirit's anointing. But notice the father's testimony in verse 22. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. Look at the voice from heaven that says this. You are my dearly son. This is fundamental to the identity of Christ, that he was identified by the father as his son. To say that he was his son was saying that he was God himself as well. This is my son. In you, I am well pleased. In God, the son, I'm well pleased. You bring me great joy. Why is it? that he's bringing the father great joy because of his sinless, eternal son of God was identifying with sinful man, submitting to the death of the cross for the redemption of all men. This is what pleased the father, the eternal son's submission to the plan of God. Now this is one of three heavenly endorsements that the father gives to the son. In fact, in his ministry, this was the first one and then the second one came in the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, where there was a voice that came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then the last week before he went to the cross at Calvary in John 12, 28, you see that Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father testifying of the Son now. All three persons of the Trinity there in only two verses. All mentioned the Holy Spirit came in bodily form like a dove. The Father's voice from heaven. The God, the Son being baptized. This is how Jesus began his earthly ministry with the blessing of the Father and with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we should do everything that we do in life. Did you know that? With the blessing of the Father and with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want you to bless this and we want you to give us the power to do it as well. This is the way that Christ did it. In Christ, we can have the same thing. Lord, would you bless it and would you give us the power to walk in obedience? Now notice there from verses 23 to verse 38 comes the genealogy of Christ Jesus. And Matthew writes the genealogy in his gospel, Matthew chapter one, regarding uh, the father of Jesus or the stepfather of Jesus. And he goes back from Joseph and writes the genealogy of who Christ was. But here in verse 23, it says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, the age where the Levites would begin their ministry, the age where the priests would begin his ministry. At the age of 30 also in the Old Testament, David became king over all of Israel. At the age of 30, Joseph was promoted by Pharaoh to the place of power in Egypt as well. This was the time where Jesus began his ministry. Being as was the supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Do you notice here how it says the supposed son of Joseph? 
Because Luke understood that Jesus was born by immaculate conception. He was, and he is the son of God. So he gives us a genealogy, not from his father's legal line, but from his mother's actual royal line. This is the genealogy from Mary all the way to Adam that leads us to God. Now, aren't you glad that we didn't do the responsive reading on these verses? But these are 76 names that are recorded. And the 76 names that you see that are recorded here tell us that Jesus is a real person with real ancestors. The son of God was also the son of man. He was born, he identified with the needs and the problems of man. And since Joseph and Mary were both in David's line, these genealogies also prove that he was the legal right to David's throne. God has preserved these to teach us his own plan from the beginning of time. This is why it goes to Adam and then to God. In verse 38, if you would draw your attention there, it would say the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then the son of who, say it aloud with me, God, the son of God. We have the royal line from verses 24 to 31. Then we have the religious line going back from David all the way to Adam from verse 32 to 34. But the reason why he goes all the way to Adam, unlike Matthew's record, is because he's letting us know, he's reminding us that Jesus was not only born for the Jewish people, he was born for all mankind. He was born for all of us. And here we have a record of the first Adam, who by way we have received the inheritance of sin and judgment. And then we have the record of the second Adam, the God-man Jesus, who by way we have the inheritance of forgiveness and also eternal life. It's important that we look at this genealogy also for another reason. Because you look at the history of the royal line of Jesus and you remember how the enemy, Satan, attempted throughout the history of the Jewish nation and these specific people to destroy the royal sea that led to Jesus Christ. From the sin of Sodom, to the division of Israel, to the attacks of their enemies, but it was all in vain. He could not destroy the plan of God that one day the heel would bruise the head of the serpent. That Jesus would be born to die on the cross so that we no longer would receive the penalty of sin nor the power of death in our lives. Now, just like the enemy was not able to overthrow God's purpose as you read these names, so it is in our own lives. So as long as we're submitted to God's will, the enemy cannot overthrow God's plan for your life. He has a perfect plan for your life. And so as long as we say, Lord, I repent for my sin. I turn to you as my Lord and Savior. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power to live this life. You'll be able to walk in the plan that he has for you. Can we pray?